Amen. What an awesome commitment on your part to holiness. That is what God wants from us, is holiness. And so today, we're going to talk a bit more about that as we open the scriptures to uh, Ezekiel, uh, not Ezekiel, Exodus chapter 19. Let's pray as we do that. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word and the power that it has to change our lives. And the power to adjust our theology so that we understand who you are more perfectly. And so, Father, we pray that as we go through uh, Exodus chapter 19, that you would reveal yourself to us in a new way, in a fresh way, and that you would cause us to understand your nature better. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a story of a young boy. He was measuring himself, and he ran to his mommy, and he said, Mommy, Mommy, I'm six feet tall. And the mother was like, Really? Uh how did you measure yourself? He says, oh, with my ruler. She says, well, can you show me? And sure enough, he pulled out his ruler and he measured off six ruler lengths on the wall. And then he sat then he, and he marked off. And sure enough, he was exactly six ruler lengths long. The only thing is the ruler was only six inches long. <laughs> so he had been measuring himself with a six inch ruler and got six, six feet out of that somehow. Anyways, you know, the thing is when we... Uh, when we look at our own life, a lot of the times we measure how good we are, how we stack up, you know, as far as, you know, is God pleased with us? And a lot of times we use the wrong ruler. A lot of times we measure how good we are compared to other people. But God says that be righteous because I am righteous. Be holy because I am holy. And measuring ourselves against God's holiness really tough to do because we're, we're not anything like God. We're not anything near him. So we've been talking about the uh, Israelis and their travels through the wilderness the last uh, number of months, really, and uh, really exciting. I was really surprised how, how much variety there is in the, in the wilderness wandering, wanderings, God revealing himself to the children of Israel over and over again. And so today we're going to see how God reveals himself when they get to a kind of a destination, Mount Sinai. Um, and uh, as I was reading today's passage in preparation, in preparation for speaking today, this, this past week, I was reading it and I was overwhelmed with a sense of my unworthiness to speak on this subject. Because the subject is God's holiness. And I, and I had this very... I had a very difficult time starting on the sermon because I was so, I felt so unworthy to talk on the subject of God's holiness. Um, and, and mainly it was because I have this very cavalier, casual relationship with God. You know, uh, I speak to him as if he's my buddy, you know. Uh, I'm, and I'm following Christ's direction, you know, our Father which art in heaven. That's how I address God. And uh, But it's very casual, and I, I'm relaxed in my relationship with God. But when I read this passage, I realized that maybe my casual relationship with God had, had, didn't have enough reverence and awe and respect for my Lord and Master. And so I, I hope that you'll 
come along with in on this journey with me of discovering a piece of God that we so easily forget that's there in the in the Old Testament. I've gotten used to saying, you know, to God, Father, and Abba, and Daddy kind of uh, comments. And, 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 and we get used to this familiarity with God. And it's a good thing. It really is. And we'll talk about more about that. Um, the, the, the familiarity with God is often referred to as the imminence of God. In other words, God is near. God is close to us. Uh, of course, when Jesus came, he was called Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Praise God for that. Um, And so we don't often talk about the transcendence of God, that God is completely and utterly different than us, and that he is so high above us, and that he is so holy, (coughs) and that his holiness pervades everything about him. We have learned from Jesus to call God our Father. But we didn't learn from Jesus to disrespect him, but to honor him. After Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, what did he say? Hallowed be thy name. The respect and the honor of God is still a vital part of the Christian's life, of of the believer's life. Uh, We have to first and foremost recognize the hallowed nature of God. So today I'd like us to come to grips with the fact that when we use the rule of holiness, we really don't measure up to God's holiness. Do you remember Job? Now, the Bible describes Job as a very righteous, a very holy man, uh, righteous in almost everything he did. Um, and And yet God sent all these terrible things on him. You know, lost all his belongings, lost all his children, lost his health. His wife said, oh, just curse God and die. Like, just give up. And he refused to do that. And the Bible continuously, a number of times, about four times, describes him as a righteous man. Now, we know that he couldn't be absolutely perfect. We know that no one is righteous. We've all failed God in some way. But the Bible, it seems to indicate that that Job came pretty close. And, uh, and his friends, when they saw the calamity that hit Job, they all kind of accused him of somehow, you must have done some wrong, because all this calamity couldn't have come upon a righteous person, which was their theology. Completely wrong theology, but that's what they believed. And so finally, so Job ends up being on the defensive and defending his righteousness. He said, no, I, I haven't done anything worthy of having all my children killed, all my cattle stolen, and uh, rain fired on, or hail coming down from God and wiping out my other cattle. And I haven't, you know, like, that's not me. And the argument goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, what happens? God shows up. And God starts challenging Job with all kinds of stuff. And at the end, of, after God shows up and challenges him from the middle of a a storm. This is Job's response. I want to read it from the Bible. Job said, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent 
in dust and ashes. Here is a righteous man suddenly going, oh, I'm sick of myself. I'm sickened by myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. The Bible never calls Job a sinner. The Bible never demands that Job repent. But here he is repenting and basically in shock. You repent in dust and ashes. Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I will put a hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. It's interesting. He still doesn't have an answer to his question. His question was, why, why all this term? Why have you dumped all this hardship on me when I've been righteous all this time? He still doesn't have an answer to that question, but he decided, you know, I'm not asking that question anymore. Why? Because he had seen, he had experienced God. And soon as he experienced God, he recognized that he was not a righteous person, that he spoke out of turn, and that he challenged God improperly. Um, Gideon had a similar experience. When Gideon saw God, he said this, Ah, uh, oh, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And he thought he was going to die. And the angel of the Lord says, don't worry, you're not going to die. Uh, Samson's parents said the same thing. The angel of the Lord came, he spoke to uh, uh, Samson's mom and then his dad. And then uh, they, they didn't realize who it was until the angel touched the meat that they were bringing and it burned up and the angel went up with the flame and disappeared. And suddenly Manoah says, Oh, I've seen the almighty God. I've seen your face, face to face. We're going to die, he says to his wife. And uh, God says, No, we're not gonna, I'm not going to kill you. Um, and, and so when people see God, they realize their mortality. They realize how sinful they are. And they realize that they're about to die. They're about to get wiped out. Daniel had a similar experience. He saw this vision of God high and lifted up. And he was very shocked. And after he had the vision, he said, I have no strength left. My face has turned deathly white. And I am helpless. Uh, And then the, the angel came and touched him and set him. And he says, trembling on his hands and knees. He's on his hand. At first, he was face down flat. Now he's, he's told, okay, c- come on, Daniel, get, get, off, get off the floor. And he's sitting there on his hands and knees, just shaking. <laughs> and finally, the angel convinces him to stand up. And he's just, he's just literally shaking. <laughs> and, and he can't say anything. His speech is, is gone. He, it says, I bowed my face to the ground and was speechless. The one who looked like a man touched my lips, opened my mouth, and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of my vision. My Lord, I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. Whoa. These are Old Testament references, of course. And you might think to yourself, yeah, when people saw God in the Old Testament, he was filled with wrath and it was it was." But you know what? In the New Testament, something similar happens. You remember Peter? Peter's out there. He's fishing all night, and he comes back into shore, and Jesus says, hey, can I borrow your boat for a while? So Peter says, sure. You know, Jesus teaches the crowd. Peter's, you know, he's, he's listening, but we're not sure if he's impressed or not. But 
Then Jesus says to Peter, why don't you put your, throw your nets out into the sea? Peter's a fisherman, okay? He recognizes that Jesus, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher of some sort, but he's not no fisherman, you know? And Peter's like, oh, Lord, we've been working all night. We haven't got anything, you know? And what he's implying is, we already fished the right time of day for fishing. Now is not the time, you know? And, and Jesus says to him, uh, I, actually, Jesus doesn't, we don't record anything that Jesus says. But it says that Peter then said, Lord, because you say so, we'll do it. I think, I think, personally, I think Jesus gave him the look. You know, <laughs> he's just like, I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened. But anyway, Peter goes out and he goes, okay, fine, I'll do it. And he throws the net over, brings in this huge catch of fish. And what does Peter say? He right away, he fall, he realizes God is here. There's something miraculous. He does, I don't think he right away recognized that Jesus was God. I don't think that was in his mind. But he realizes the supernatural nature of what just happened. And he falls to his knees. And this is what he says. Lord, move away from me because I am a sinful man. In the presence of God and the miraculous, the natural response of the human is to recognize their own unworthiness and their own sinfulness. It happens all the time. Remember in the, when John's on the island of Patmos and he's given these great vision of Jesus Christ. In all of his glory, his hair as white as snow, his, his legs like, like fire, fiery pillars of bronze, and, and a sash around his waist, and he looks at him, and he's just blown away. And this is what it says. He fell like a dead person before the Lord. Now, John has been saved for a long time. The blood of Christ has washed him pure. But when he saw Jesus Christ, he fell like a dead person at the glory of Christ. He had already seen Christ's glory before on the Mount of Transfiguration. But here, when he sees him again, he falls like one dead. The last example, most, most famous one, of course. In the year uh, Isaiah died, uh, um, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple. And he's blown away, and, he's, and he sees these, these creatures, these seraphs with six wings. They're flying around, and they're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the sound of their voices, these are, these are seraphs. These are holy, holy beings themselves, powerful. And when they spoke, the doorposts of heaven started shaking. I mean, these are... Whoa, angelic beings. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're in awe of God's holiness. And when Isaiah sees all this and hears all this, he falls down and he says, woe to me. Woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He realized that his own voice was condemning him, and that he was about to perish. He's just like, whoa, it's me. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, he says. 
and touched my lips with it. He recognized his sin, and right away God provided a provision for his sin and washed his lips. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the the thoughts that were running around in my mind after I read uh, Ezekiel. I mean, sorry, Exodus. I keep saying that. I don't know why. Exodus chapter 19. It was just like I got a renewed sense of awe of God's power and his greatness and his majesty. It's just like, whoa. And I kind of felt like what Ruth Graham said. This is Billy Graham's wife. She said, you know, when I think of God, I feel weak, lazy, indifferent in character, casual when I should be concerned, concerned when I should be carefree, self-indulgent, hypocritical, begging God to help me when I'm hardly willing to lift a finger for myself, quarrelsome when I should be silent, silent when I should be outspoken, vacillating, easily distracted, sidetracked. This is, this is Ruth Graham. She's a pretty impressive woman who loves the Lord. Well, my friends, if I wrote out my list and shared it with you like she did, has bravely done, I don't know what you'd think of me. Probably what I think of myself, not very highly. It's not a good list, the things that I realize separate me from God, the sin in my life. So I feel quite inadequate to comment on the Bible in general, on Exodus 19 in particular. I know I fall so short of the glory of God. My sinful heart is in no condition to be in the presence of God. And yet, God calls me to, into his presence by a new and living way, the veil that was born, torn in two, as Hebrews says. God says, come boldly before me. And I'm like, how can this be? And my friends, we need a new understanding of how can this be? We're so used to hearing sermons on boldly enter into the presence of God. And, you know, like our, our buddy, Jesus Christ, calls us to follow him, you know, in this sense of just familiarity with God. We need to understand that that familiarity with God is absolutely right and true and blessed, but it came at an awful price. And we need to understand why that price had to be paid is because of the glory of God. It's because God is so holy, so other, so far removed in his holiness from us that that price was required to be paid. And we need a new understanding of that because we've gotten so used to that we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that we are holy that we are close to God. We're so used to that that we forget the background of who God really is. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, God's awesome presence causes us to see our inadequacy, but that's the very thing that allows God to cleanse us and welcome us to himself. So let's dig into chapter 19 of Exodus. Um, very first 
verse gives us the timeline. It's been three months since the Israelites left Egypt, and now they finally arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. And uh, I love that it says there that they camped in front of the mountain. The mountain's not even named. Uh, until this, this point in the Bible, uh, Mount Sinai has never been named. And yet, it just says at the base, at the mountain, as if we all know. And I think it's because this mountain plays such a huge part in the formation of the Israelite nation that they all knew, Moses didn't have to explain as he was writing this, what mountain this was. This was the mountain. <laughs> and they all knew who, what it was. Um, way back in chapter 3, we're first introduced to this mountain, although it's not by name. It's, at that point, it's just in the area of Horeb. But this mountain, it says, it, it calls it the mountain of God. This is the very same mountain that Moses was on when he saw a bush burning and not burning up. And Moses went over to see what it was like. And a voice came from the, the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses is like, whoa, this bush knows my name. <laughs> you know, he's a little shocked. And then the, the voice said, don't come any closer and take off your sandals for the, the ground on which you're standing is holy. What was God saying? Don't come any closer. I will kill you if you come closer. It was the basic understanding. Take off your sandals. In other words, do something physical that shows that you respect me. Something physical. We are physics-bound people. We're so physical, you know. And God knows that. And he knows that when we worship him, it also has to be physical. It is included. So when I see people raising their hand or getting down on their knees before God, I go, that's part of a proper understanding of worship. It's physical. And it's what we do. When, when people give funding to God, that's a physical thing that we do. That's, that's a worship thing. When we stand and lift up our hands and worship to God, we're saying, God, you're honored above all. You are to be praised above all. These are all physical attributes of our worship to God. And God demands those things. He calls for those things. It's part of how we worship him. Um, A few verses later, God, well, God then tells him his mission, you know, you got to go and rescue the people of Israel from the Egyptians and Moses is like, okay, uh, but he's a little hesitant, okay? And so God shows him a sign. Now, we all think of, all oh, the sign was him putting his hand in his shirt and bringing out leprous and the snake on the ground and all that. But that's not the first sign that God gives him. The first sign that God gives him, this is going to be the sign of you. It's found in verse five, or 12. God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Yeah, well, it's going to be a good sign. This is the sign. When you have brought the people out of Israel, you will worship God on this mountain. Hold it. You're sending me to get the people of Israel and bring them here. Okay, I get that. That's the mission you're sending me on. And the mission that this sign, that this mission is from you is that it will actually happen. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 
There's no, you know, snakes and uh, leprous hands or anything. It's just like, you'll know when you get here. When you get back here with all those people, then you'll know that I sent you. I love that because God sends us on missions like that all the time, doesn't he? He says, you know what? Go and witness to your neighbor. And you're like, and when he becomes a Christian, you know that I sent you. (laughs) And this is the kind of thing that God does. Elim is is sent on this trip that God is sending her on. And I just have a feeling that, you know, she'll see fruit when she gets there. But until then, maybe no fruit. Uh, She's raising money. And, you know, it's going to be a miracle that all the money she needs. But I believe God will do that. God will provide those things. And this will be his sign. Hudson Taylor said, um, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. I love that because it's basically saying, you know, you'll know that you're doing God's work God's way because, you're, cause, because you don't lack for supply from God. Uh, not a lot of times the other way around. Um, so we need to recognize that God often sends us and the proof is in the pudding kind of thing. It's the proof that God is sending us when, we, when our mission is actually completed. And so we actually, in, in, in the story today, we, we come to the completion of his mission, basically, to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt and bring them to this mountain where they're going to worship God. And, and in fact, they spend the next year in this spot. In fact, the whole rest of the book of Exodus happens in this spot. In fact, the whole book of Leviticus, the whole entire book happens in this spot. And the first 10 chapters of Numbers happens in this spot. 57 chapters of the Bible happen right here, Mount Sinai. Um, And so God is going to prepare the people for Mount Sinai. It's a big deal. Um, So the first thing that God does is he calls Moses to go up to the mountain. So in verses uh, 3 and 4, Moses went up to God, and God called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. A couple things I'd like you to notice about this. God doesn't call them the house of Abraham or the house of uh, Isaac. He calls them the house of Jacob. Do you remember Jacob, the patriarch? Jacob was a little bit of a crafty guy. He, wasn't, he didn't follow rules very well, and he was kind of moving around, and he wrestled with God. And so that's the name God calls the Israelites. I think it was because... They weren't trusting God very well. And even though God gave them miracle after miracle, they were still a little crafty and a little unsure of who God was. Uh, but then he says, I bore you on the wings of eagles. It's interesting. You know, uh, hens, their chicks gather around them. But an eagle actually carries its chicks on top of its wings. I think it's the only bird that does that. Carries its, its young along. And so that's the way God carried the Israelites out of Egypt and brought them to this place. And it says, where did God bring them? Do you see from this verse, where did God bring them? To myself. To myself. What you're going to notice in the next few verses is a very interesting phenomena. God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and then called them his own. His own possession. In other words, 
just like you know, in the in the in bringing them out of Egypt, the firstborn of the of Pharaoh was killed, and the firstborn of Egypt, Egyptians were killed. God actually calls then the firstborn of the Israelites they're mine. In fact, you have to buy your own children back from me. You have to sacrifice a, a, a bull in order to get your kids back from me because they're mine. I bought them. I paid for them. Wow. Look what it says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you will be my special, a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God is saying to Moses, you know, like, these people are now mine. Did you, do you see how many possessive words there are here? God is saying, you're mine now. I brought you out of Egypt, now you're mine. If you will obey my commands, then you'll be mine. And I will make you a special people. I, I love this. This is the first time I ever saw this in the Old Testament when I read this this week. And this next line. And you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I thought that was the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I've preached that in the Old Testament there were priests and then there were the people. And in the New Testament, we're all priests. But here, I never saw this before. In the Old Testament, God is calling all of his people priests. And I'm like, that's amazing. God's purpose in choosing the nation was not for them to be a secluded little group. Oh, keep everybody else out. You don't want anyone else to contaminate you. That was not God's purpose at all. His purpose was that they would be a priest, that they would, you know what priests do? What do priests do? They mediate between two entities. Priests mediate between two entities this way, actually. God up here, people down here, priest in the middle. They would take the sacrifices of the people, offer them to God, take the blessings of God, and offer them to the people. They were the in-between guys. And that's what God is saying about the whole nation of Israel. There to be his in-between guys so that everyone who looked at the people of Israel would go like, whoa, did you check out those Israelites? God is with them. They're such a holy people. They're like God. And then God keeps blessing them over and over and over. That was God's purpose in calling the Israelites. Did that work out very well? <laughs> I hear some snickering out there. No, it didn't work out too well. They didn't act like priests. They forgot about God. They rebelled against God. They did all kinds of things that weren't godly. And God judged them for it. But that was the purpose of God. Today we're called priests. And, and we're called to this ministry of reconciliation between God and people. Um, <clears throat> Yep, same thing happened in this service as happened in the last service. I get to this point in the service, and my clock at the back says, you're out of time. <laughs> and I haven't even gotten into the passage. So what I'm going to do is the same thing as I did last time. I'm just going to read the passage. Um, <clears throat> I can find it here. And I would just want to invite you into being there, okay? 
just feel like you're before the mountain and just just pull in what happens. <clears throat> so Moses went back. Uh, oh, sorry. So this is what God tells Moses, what we just talked about. You know, like you're going to be a holy people. And my, my possession, if you obey me. So Moses goes back in verse 7 and summons the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together, we will do everything that the Lord said. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking to you and you will always put their, and they will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready the third day, because they, on that day the Lord will come down on the mountain in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of, of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. You notice the two things going on here? Wash your clothes and set boundaries around the mountain. This is very similar to what happened to Moses when he saw the burning bush, right? Take your sandals off, item of clothing, and don't get any closer. This is a holy God who cannot be seen, who is other than us. And he says, watch out. I'm a holy God. You're a sinful people. There's got to be some boundaries here. Keep the boundaries there. <clears throat> he goes on. Um, Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he is not permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. Not up the mountain, but up to the mountain, okay, to where the boundaries are. And after Moses had gone down to the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. So he took it one step further. He said, and even sexual relations, don't do that. Now, is there something evil or bad about sexual relations between husbands and wives? No, not at all. But Moses was saying, consecrate yourself. In other words, uh, deprive yourself of something that's quite normal in order that you might meet God. There's a preparation here going on. And I had to ask myself this week, like, how am I preparing to meet God tomorrow at church. How is that preparation going? Am I sanctified? Am I holy? Am I righteous? Have I been washed in the blood of the land afresh? Or am I just, oh, I got to get the sermon done. You know, like that's usually my way of entering the house of the Lord, panicking that I don't have the sermon quite finished. And I was, I felt, and it happened again even this morning, and I'm, I'm still like reeling, and I'm kind of like, how is this preparing? to meet with the Lord of Lords and the, the Holy One of Israel. God wants us to be prepared. On the morning of the third day, this is the day, okay? It says, 
Thunder and lightning and a thick cloud covered the mountain and very loud trumpet blast. Can you imagine a very loud trumpet blast coming from the sky? <laughs> and everyone in the camp trembled. They're freaking out. They're like, what is happening? Is this the end of the earth? You know? And then Moses led the people out of the camp. See, the trumpet was blasting and getting louder and louder. And this was a sign that they were supposed to go and meet God. Terrifying. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. And smoke billowed up from the, like the smoke from a chimney. And the whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses up to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. Yeah, no kidding. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through, through to see the Lord. And many of them perish. Have you ever had that sense? Watch out so that you don't see the Lord and perish. I don't know. I'm not sure I've experienced that exactly. Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach and the, the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Now, Moses had already warned the people. Moses had already set up barriers. Moses had already told them, you're going to get stoned or shot if you come close or touch the mountain. And God's, And so Moses is a little confused. He's like, uh, Moses said to the Lord, uh, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. I mean, we, we've already done what you've asked. And the Lord replied, go down, <laughs> get Aaron and uh, bring Aaron with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. Isn't that weird? And so Moses goes down a second time and explains to the people, do not come close or God is going to break out against you and wipe you out. The, we call this part of God, his transcendence. It's his holiness and his complete otherness and his complete um, differentness than we are. And we need to respect it and honor it, reverence it like nothing else. So I don't know whether it's what you wear. You know, I remember Wellesley Smith, he's gone on to be with the Lord already. But he said to me all the time, oh, I always will wear my suit and my jacket. I dress up for Sunday. That's part of my preparation for worship. It's to prepare to meet the king. I love that guy. I wore a tie today just because of that. <laughs> and I know I don't always dress up for Sunday, but I'm wondering maybe I should. I don't know. How do I prepare to meet the God of the universe who is holy perfection all alone? How do I prepare to meet him? I don't know. We're not rightly told all of it, but Jesus said we need to prepare in in, to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
Part of that truth might be confessing our sins, don't you think? To coming to God as a holy being. Spirit and truth. So it's all about the spirit. So yes, I don't I don't I'm not preaching that you all have to wear a suit and tie to church. But you need to come prepared. I don't know what preparation looks like to you. But it's preparation to worship God in spirit and in truth. And to be in awe of God and to show reverence for God and to recognize who he is. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, the Bible is very clear that we need to discern the body of the Lord because otherwise some have died, passed away, and, and gotten sick. The Lord doesn't just want to t- us to take the things of God trivially, the Bible. Uh, I remember going to Egypt, and I've told you this before. That I put my Bible on, a, on the bottom of a stack of books, and the people just quietly grabbed my Bible and put it up on the top. I didn't realize that, that was the custom that showed respect for the Bible. I laid it on the floor one time. And they just quietly picked it up, put it on the table. And I was learning something about honoring and respect that I had never seen before, not part of my culture. He, I, I don't know how God is calling each and every individual here to show honor and respect to him, but I do know he's calling us to do it. Now, As I said at the beginning, Jesus instituted the Lord's Prayer and told us to call God our Father. He also told us, uh, or Paul tells us to call God Abba, Father. That's like Daddy. This is a very familiar term. So what is it? Is is he distant? You know, like is he, uh, what's the word? Um, I've just been preaching it ten times already. (laughs) anyways he's wholly other or is he imminent which is he he's both and if we don't understand his holiness properly we will never understand the need for a sinless perfect person to die a horrible death on calvary to take away our sins we'll never understand that if we don't first of all understand how holy god is And how otherly he is. But then, because of Christ's death, the Bible says the veil in the temple was torn in two. We now come to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about coming to Christ by the new and living way through the veil. That is his body. We come to God through Christ. Through his death on the cross. That's what makes us familiar with God. But don't ever... Don't ever forget that God's nature hasn't changed. He's still that same holy, awe-inspired, terror-inspiring God. But now we have this way to meet him through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! You know, if you go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, it talks about that we don't come to a mountain filled with smoke and terror any longer. And where a mountain where Moses trembled with fear before. No, we come to Mount Zion. And what's Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the city of God. It's the place where Jesus Christ was killed on the Mount 
on the mountain outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem. We come to that mountain, the city of God, in joyful procession, recognizing that Jesus Christ has washed us of all our sins and made a new and living way for us to enter into the enter boldly, it says, into the presence of God. For the Jewish mind in Jesus' day, that would have been like blowing their minds. For us, it's just like, oh yeah, of course. Let's not allow it to become, oh yeah, of course. Let's remember the awesomeness of God and then revel in the fact that he says, come on, meet with me. Come, join me here in heaven. Join me now in prayer. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Praise God. It's amazing. Transcendence, imminence. That's the word I was looking for before. Transcendence, imminence. They're both part of God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your imminence and that we get to be called children of God. But Lord, help us to remember your transcendence. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, come now. As you dismiss us, Lord, may we praise your name with this final song, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.